at that prayer meeting. Okay, turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. Now, I knew at some point when we started this series that I would need to talk about the big elephant in the room when it comes to Judges. And so I thought I'd give you a couple of weeks in before I talked about the big elephant in the room. So I'm going to talk, talk about that right now before we jump into the passage. So here's the big elephant in the room. And if you're not someone who grew up in the church and not someone who grew up reading the Bible, um, you're probably more aware of it than other people that are in this room right now. And here's what I want to say. What I, what I want to say: If you look at the book of Judges, when you look at a book like Judges, it can be very disturbing that God has commanded the Israelites no, to go into Canaan and take out certain people groups and push them out of the land, or even kill some of them. Right? Um, this can be a very disturbing image when you look at the Old Testament, especially, and it can conjure up all sorts of you know, modern day thoughts of like, well, that's what people over in the Middle East are talking about, and that's jacked up, so how can we say that this is okay, how can we say this is God's will and so on, and here's how, I'll say a few brief things about that, um, back in, when ancient Israel was being told by God to go into these lands and push them out, God had given them a specific command to go and do that, but what he'd also done was, a lot of the nations he is pushing out, had fallen into some great, great evil and done some horrific things. And so um, you could also argue that God is using the nation to, to defeat them, to judge them for their evil. We don't know um, the extent to which God had revealed himself to those nations. We can't answer all those questions. But here's what I do know. Listen. Is that our God is sovereign. I still believe our God is good and he is sovereign. And he knows just what he's doing. And so I'll say that to you, but I'll also say this, that God also wanted his nation, the Israelites, to live as a pure nation. And so when he told them to drive out the Canaanites, it wasn't just drive these people out because they're bad and you're good, you're the chosen people, so you're going to have your little holy huddle right here in the promised land and we'll just have a great kingdom to ourselves. That wasn't the point of the Israelites. The point of the Israelites was to be a priestly nation for the rest of the world. What does a priest do? In the Old Testament, a priest is to represent the people to God. And so if Israel is supposed to be a priestly nation, then they're supposed to represent God to the people of the rest of the world, not just themselves. And so it might be possible, listen up, listen, everyone kind of looking this way. It might be possible that God drives out the Canaanites so the Israelites can live a pure and holy set-apart existence, set-apart set unto himself, so that other nations might look in and say, hey, what is it that that nation has? I want, I want what they have. I want to be a part of what they have. And begin asking questions and wondering what it must be like to worship the God that the Israelites serve and worship. But the Israelites made the mistake of not being pure, not being set-apart. And it ruined their witness to those pagan countries. And so I want you to see the big picture of what God is doing as he makes these weird commands um, in this part of the Bible. So, because if you thought last week was weird, today's going to get a little bit even weirder. So, um, so look at Judges chapter 4. And I'm going to try to sprint through this passage and give you guys time for discussion at the very end here. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says... 
And the people of Israel again did what was, what was evil on the side of the Lord after Ehud died. So remember Ehud last week? Um, he's the guy that uh, stabbed that king, and it was such a glorious passage and event that we saw last week. Um, and so Ehud, Ehud became their spiritual leader after um, this great military defeat. And so after Ehud died, the people again turn away from God and turn towards evil. And what I want you to see is that when, when Ehud died, that's when they turn away. So when the leader goes away, the leader goes away, that's when the people turned away from God. I want you to think about this. How does this happen? Does this happen to us? Are, are, we, are we a people who rely a bit too much on a leader? Like when that leader is removed from your life, say you graduate high school and you no longer have uh, someone like Dixie or Aaron pouring into your life at that time and you go off to college and you think to yourself, well, I don't have them anymore, so... You know, I guess I'm just going to take it spiritually. When, when that leader is removed from your life, how do you respond? The nation of Israel did not respond very well when he had passed away. It's like when he went away, instead of their faith. They're, they're kind of like living vicariously through their leader. And we see this pattern over and over again where this one leader will kind of get them right or get them on the right track spiritually. But as soon as that leader has gone... It's like there's nothing left in their lives and hearts that's for God. That leader's gone, and so is their faith. The question I want to ask you is, is your faith, is it tied up in one person or one other friend or one person that holds you accountable? When that person goes away, what's going to happen to your faith? When that person goes away, is your faith going to go with it? Look at verse 2. It says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hiroshith Hagoyim. Is that a good pronunciation? Yeah, that's, that's great. It'll work. Okay, so there's some people here. I know whenever the Bible throws out names, it's like you just start hearing gibberish. You're like, okay, oh I forgot where you were. Where, where are you again? So, two people to know. So you've got Ea, he's dead. And then the Lord then sells the people, the Israelites, into the hand of a Canaanite king named Jabin. And uh, the commander of Jabin's army is who? Sisera, right? You got the names? And so that's his main general. Now when you see this pattern, look. We, we see a pattern in the Bible whenever God's people chase after sin. That God will eventually hand them over to their sin. And, and so we see this happen even today. We see it with the Israelites. We also see it happen in our lives today. Romans 1 and 2 talks about, Paul talks about this, that God handed them over to their idolatry and what they wanted to do. And so here's what God does. God does this, I think, for one main reason, because he wants you to experience the full weight of your sin so that you will cry out and turn in repentance back towards him. So it's not like he just, it's not like he just, you know, does it because he wants to punish. It's not the only reason. He does it because he wants you to feel the full weight of what you, of what your sin is. Because some, what happens sometimes with us is once you start the pattern of sin in your life, you start, it doesn't just happen like automatically. You just go, you know what, forget church, forget God, I'm going to go pursue this. What happens, you start very slowly and you kind of spiral down just a little bit. 
And then what happens is, um, at some point you begin to realize, you know, I'm, I'm getting pretty far down this downward spiral. And it, it's, instead of being a split-second decision that you're just going to reject God and follow someone else, um, what you try to do is many of you try to live with one foot in each world. One foot in the church and one foot in your sin. And you try to maintain this balance. So that you still feel connected to God. You still feel good about yourself. And what God is doing is saying, no, no, we're not going to play games here. We're not going to play games. We're not going to play that one foot in, one foot out game. I'm going to hand you over to your idolatry. So you can feel the full weight of it. And know that I am nowhere near you right now. You want no part of me right now. So I'm going to give you over to it in hopes that you'll come back to me. And this is what he does with the Israelites throughout this book. And I think, um, just look at the issue of dating. I have seen countless teenagers um, look solid spiritually on the outside, say all the right things, do all the right things, and then that girl, that guy starts showing her attention, and she knows he's not a godly guy. She knows what he's all about. And she starts, he starts pursuing her, and she starts responding to that. And in a few months, she's just, he's gone. He's gone. And what God will do is he will literally hand you over and say, look, okay, fine, you want to chase after idols? I'll let you chase after idols. I will give you what you want, and hopefully you will feel the weight of that to the point where you come back to me. That is my hope and our desire. And I'll say this to you, if you're in a situation like that right now, in, in, in a relationship you know is not um, a godly one. If, if that young man does not love Jesus, if he does not love Jesus, he is never going to love you more than he loves himself. If he doesn't love Jesus, he's never going to love you more than he loves himself. The only way for him to love you that way, the way that Christ loved the church sacrificially, is if he loves Jesus. And that is who he's following. That is his passion. That's the only way it's going to happen for you. And so just like the Israelites, we often chase after idolatry. Look at verse 3. It says, verse 3, it says, uh, That the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots. This is what talking about. 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So I want to show you a picture of, of an ancient chariot. This is a, probably the best one I could find. Um, these are like ancient tanks, right? This would be, if, you're, if you're a foot soldier in Israel, which Israel did not have like a very organized army, didn't have a lot of weapons and, and a big militia, but this guy had 900 war chariots. Now anyone here grew up around horses? Are you around horses a lot? Raise your hand. So I grew up around horses and large farm animals, and as a kid, I was intimidated by these things. I, I mean, they're, they're very intimidating, especially the ones running at you at 25 miles per hour. So you're a foot soldier, Israel, and this guy has 900 of these things. They've got blades coming out of the, of the, um, the wheel there. And so they've got guys throwing spears, they've got guys shooting arrows, you got a horse that's coming at you, large chariots with blades, all right? And you've got a stick. That's not going to go well for you, right? 
So this is a very intimidating guy. And 900 chariots would easily mow down like thousands and thousands of infantry. And so this was, these were, these were incredible killing machines back in that time. But I want you to notice something in verse 3. It says, Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Notice this. They didn't cry out in repentance, did they? They cried out for deliverance. They cried out and said, God, we need, we need your help. We need to defeat this enemy. God, can you set us free from this oppressor? And so it said for 20 years, this man treats them this way. And they're just now crying out. But not crying out in repentance. They're crying out for deliverance. They're crying out for God. Set us free from this oppressor. Set us free from this hardship. Set us free from this cruelty. But they're not crying out for the most important thing, which is repentance. They're not turning back towards God in repentance. And I think the same thing is true, true of us, is it not? We ask God to set us free from consequences. Once you've kind of gone off into your sin, and that sin has consequences that are built into the sin, you start to get all freaked out, like, God, why did this happen to me? God set me free from these consequences. You don't say it like that, that's what you imply. We don't say it that way, but we, that's what we're asking God to do. God set me free from these things, this cruelty, this oppression, these hardships, but we're not turning back towards Him in repentance. And so a great question to ask yourself is, what's the focus, what's the focus of your prayers? Is it just to fix the external problems that you see in your life, or is it to fix you? Is it to fix those things, or is it to fix my heart and say, God, I want to repent and turn to you as I go through this? Look at verse uh, 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, another great name. Was judging Israel at that time. What's her name? She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So um, here we have what I think is a fascinating character. This woman, this female, Deborah. She's a judge in Israel. And she's not like Judge Judy. So I'll get that picture in your mind of like... This person with a strong York accent with, uh, you know, telling people how it's going to be. Um, but she is a, a prophet and a judge. And if uh, some people think that the, the Bible is negative towards women, but Deborah's a judge. De Deborah's a person with a very prominent position, a prominent role in the nation of Israel. It says that people would come seek her out. They would actually come to her and say, hey, we have a, a conflict. We need to have you make a decision. And they would sit under her judgment, sit under her decision, because they respected her. They saw her as someone who's wise, and they sought out her counsel and judgment as a prophetess of Israel. It's a pretty remarkable thing that we're seeing this in Scripture. Uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to summarize some of these uh, verses so that save time. So a summary of verses uh, 6 and 7. Here's a summary for you. Look on the screen. So Deborah, the prophetess, she tells, I'm going to call this guy Barak, because if I say Barak, you're going to think something differently, right? So I'll just call him Barak, just to make it like easy for you. So she tells uh, Barak, who's a military leader for Israel, that God wants him to fight against Sisera, who's the enemy, the Canaanite military leader we talked about before. 
So Deborah goes and says, God wants you to go up against this guy Sisera and fight up against him. Elegant, uh, keep out of verse 8 and 9. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So this big, strong military dude, he's got 10,000 soldiers at his disposal. He says to this, this female, If you will not go with me, I will not go. Right? It's looking kind of weird, right, at first. I want to explain this to you. Look at verse 9. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. The Lord will, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So she's a prophetess. What does a prophetess do? She prophesies things. So that's why she's a prophetess. I just love saying prophetess as much as I can. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So you follow the story here. Okay. So on the surface, how many of you guys think he is saying this because he's scared to go into battle by himself? He needs a female. Raise your hand. You think he's scared? Raise your hand. Don't be scared to raise your hand. You think he's scared? Uh, so I'm guessing no, so no one thinks he's scared. You guys all think he has a different reason for asking her to go into battle with him. Well, I think you are correct. Because I think there are some that think he's scared. He's like, you know, I need you to go into battle with me because you're, you're wise and what I'm scared. But I think this is actually an act of faith. He's asking her to come with him. And here's why I think that. Because Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 calls Barak a man of great faith. And why would it label him as that if he was exhibiting great faith in this situation? Secondly, she is a prophet. What do prophets do? They yell at people for a job. That's their job is to yell at people and rebuke them. So if he's sinning by, in, in his fear, being scared, then I would have thought that she would have rebuked him and said, instead of saying, okay, I'll come with you, right? And so I think he's showing great faith here because here's why. She was wise and discerning as the judge of Israel, and he knew he would need he would need her wisdom and discernment as he goes to battle. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Just think of the listen. Think of the humility required by this military guy to ask a woman to come and join him in battle. Right. This guy has great faith. This guy has great humility as he does this. We're going to come back to this idea in a minute. Look at, um, I'm going to summarize for you verses uh, 10 to 16 just very quickly. So this is a summary of verses 10 to 16. So uh, Sisera, the enemy, hears about the plan. And he gets his 900 chariots ready. And then as you read throughout that passage, you'll see that God gives Barak the victory. But Sisera escapes uh, to the tent of a woman named Jael. So Sisera escapes to her tent. Okay, so here's what we're going to pick up with the story now. Now, Jael was just a housewife. Um, she lived in a tent, so I guess we'd call her something else, but a tent wife. Home alone, minding her own business. And verse 19, pick up in verse 19, it says this. And he said to her, please, this is Sisera talking, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. You've been running away from 
the, the battle scene. So he only survivors Sisera. He flees the battle scene to get away from Barak. He comes upon this tent, sees this woman there by herself, and thinks, okay, no men are here. I'm safe. So then he, then he says to her, he goes, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened the skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael said, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. <laughs> No kidding. <laughs> He's been nailed to the ground. So, remember that guy I told you about at the end of the series where I said I had this student before that said Judges was his favorite book in the Bible? And I told you that student was like violent and scary. Now you know why. I was concerned about that kid, right? So, um, so let's just recap what happened here in the story. Listen, let's take a quick recap on this. So, she, she says to him, you know, why don't you come in for a, a warm glass of milk? Why don't you lay over here on this, this, this rug that I have for you? Why don't, here's a warm blanket. Why don't you go to sleep? Bam! Right? <laughs> right in his head. And then she's like, I'm sorry. You know, like I'm just a woman, just a housewife, right? <laughs> and so this lady is no joke, right? She is no joke at all. And so Sisera, listen, listen, Sisera thinks she's, Sisera thinks he's safe. He's like, hey, she's, I asked for water, she gave me milk. That's a friendly thing to do. I guess I'll go to sleep. Right? He's dead as a result. So, um, so taking up uh, tents and putting up tents is actually women's work back in that day. I don't want to, I hate to use that word, but it's kind of like, you know, a chauvinist thing to use that word, but um, the commentators that I read, they said that taking up tents and putting down tents is actually what the what the females did back in the day, so she would have had very good aim, right? She was skilled with a hammer and a peg. Alright, so look down at uh, verse 22. Pick it up right there, verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. I bet she will. <laughs> so he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, once again, we're left with that big question. So what is the big point of that story? And how does that... Can you guys read that as like your devotional one morning? You're like, what do I do with this? <laughs> I can't really follow what it's saying to do here. So, um, without committing a, a crime. So, um, so you read a story like that and you're like, what in the world's God saying in a story like this? And I think this is a really cool... But I want you to focus on a couple of things here. For a couple of applications. Um, first of all, kind of like last week, we see God using 
two very unlikely people to carry out his purposes, right? Um, in, in the back part of the story, we hear about uh, Barak, who's a military guy, Sisera, who's a big, strong, bad dude, 10,000 Israelites, 900 Canaanite chariots. But who do we hear the most about in the story? Two females, right? Two women. Now, before the ladies get all like women empowerment, like, that's right, rah, right? Like, don't get all sassy with the guys. Just hang on to the end of the story here. Just chill out. This is not like a feminist manifesto passage. The first thing, listen, before anyone feels sorry for this guy, Sisera, I want you to know what this guy was about. Judges chapter 5, the next chapter tells us that he would often capture women. He actually would commit, his men would, would rape them. They would keep them as sex slaves. And this is a bad dude. This is a horrible dude. So watch this. Here's what God does. He takes two people, two females, the people he's been oppressing, and he uses those two people to put an end to him. I mean, this is the part of the movie where you feel like full vindication, right? You're, you're watching the film and you're like, yes, that's right. A woman stuck a tent peg in his head. Yes, right? And you just feel like that's awesome, right? Because this guy was an evil dude who got his justice. This is how you feel if you're watching this in a film. But I want you to see two other things as we try to apply this, this strange and wacky passage. Um, I think there is a, a powerful message here for the guys and for the girls. And I'll address both separately. Uh, first, for the ladies. Because with Deborah, listen to, listen to this. With Deborah, you see a woman who is full of conviction. People looked at her and thought she is a wise, God-fearing woman. And they wanted to come to her and seek out her wisdom and her discernment. And the question I have for the ladies right now is this. What kinds of things do you value? Do you value being that kind of a woman? A woman that others seek out and, and, and want your wisdom, want your discernment? Want to know how, why it is that you're a God-fearing woman like Deborah? Do they want to see you as that? Do you value those things? Or do you just want to be attractive? Do you just want to be the girl that the guys, you know, think is attractive? Like, what, what do you value in your life? Because, hey, I'll just get real specific, you know, because I don't see a lot of dudes taking a bunch of selfies. You know, I just don't. I just don't. All right, maybe a few, but they're, they're messed yeah, up too. Maybe. Um, But listen, 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 shh, listen up. But what do you value? Like, do you value being the kind of person that she is or being a person who's just, you know, an inch deep, but people think you're attractive? Like, what do you value? Do you want to be someone like a Deborah? And then to the guys, listen. To the guys. I think this is huge. To the guys, do you see females as less than? Do you see them as less than? Because look what... Barak did. He has 10,000 men at his disposal. So what does he do? He wants the discernment and wisdom of a woman that he knows has great wisdom. He wants to have her input. He wants to include her in the plan. What humility. So as, as you grow up and as you get a wife one day, 
God has placed her in your life and God wants to use her wisdom and discernment to speak into your life. Listen to her, right? As a married man, I can tell you, listen to her, all right? Why it's not here today, is she? I don't think she is. But she's a great source of wisdom for me. I ask her lots and lots of questions. Um, some of you guys just really perplexed me and I have to understand you better. So I have to go to her for advice. Um, so some of you guys, you really do. You view women as less than and you're like, I'm not going to listen to what she has to say. And, and until God gives you a wife, right now he's giving, he's giving you a mother to speak into your life. He really has. And as you as you start to break away from especially your mom and, and lean more towards your dad as you become a man, um, you're gonna have the tendency to be like, oh, she's a mom. She's just worried about everything. What does she know? And God has placed her in your life with wisdom, wisdom and discernment for a reason. For a reason. One more application for you guys after discussion. We see Israel. They're in that same pattern all over again where they sin. They rebel against God. God hands over their enemies. They cry out to God. And then God saves them, right? That's the spiral that they're caught up in. Right now, some of you guys are right at the beginning of that pattern. And you feel this great need to rebel just because that's just what you want to do. Like you just feel like, okay, my oldest brother. Um, he's following Christ. I don't want to be like him. So the way I'm going to make myself look unique is I'm going to rebel. You may not think it out that way in your mind, but that's really what's happening. Where my parents are, everyone says my parents is godly people, and I don't want to. I want to be different. I want to be unique, and so I'm going to rebel because that's just what I want to do to set myself apart from what they are. I want to be my own person, and so often that. That, that, that looks like spiritual rebellion. It is spiritual rebellion. And I'm going to tell you this morning that um, in our culture that we live in today, the truly, the only truly rebellious thing to do is to follow Jesus. The only truly rebellious thing to do against our culture is to follow Christ. That's all there is left. Because no matter what sin patterns you go off and want to explore, it's been done before. Everyone's tried it. Everyone's done it. You'll be like everybody else. In your effort, listen, in your effort to be unique and individual, you will not be unique and individual. The only rebellious thing left to do is to follow Jesus. That's our hope for all of you. Go ahead and finish up with your uh, discussion.